Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is the managing editor of the internet, Dave Pell. He writes the Next Draft newsletter, and he sits on the board of 826 Valencia. His new book is Please Scream Inside Your Heart, Breaking News and Nervous Breakdowns in the Year That Would Not End, which is published by our friends at Hachette. Dave, welcome to the program. Thanks a lot for having me on. It is an honor to have you here. And Dave, I used to manage a bookstore in San Francisco that is no longer in business. Uh, we were a very successful store, but the wider chain of stores was not. Uh, at this store, we did a journal drive for 826 Valencia. Uh, one of my favorite events I ever managed was when we displayed the journals that the kids at 826 Valencia had filled out. I still treasure a Christmas card I got that year uh, from the kids. For our listeners who are unaware, can you tell us what 826 Valencia is, what kind of work you do, and how our listeners can find out more? Sure. Uh, 826 Valencia is a program where we really focus on writing um, as the main uh, sort of educational aspect. A lot of people are focusing on STEM these days, which is of course important and other issues, but re we really focus and hone in on writing where the kids can be creative and sort of build confidence. And the writing later gets used in millions of ways, whether it's um, people actually becoming writers or poets, uh, or more likely just that they're using that writing to be more confident and expressing themselves about their beliefs or on a job application or a college essay. Uh, so it's a really great program. It serves a ton of kids in San Francisco. It was started by Dave Eggers. And um, it's just a great program. I The level at which kids come in versus when they're been there for a few years is just amazing. The numbers are all great, but mostly it's just a really a place with a great vibe and great people that are all after the same thing, which is helping kids out. It was interesting during the, uh, during the pandemic. Um, I really learned a lot about uh, some of America's deeper systemic inequalities because um I live about a 15 minute drive from our 826 uh, center. And at my kid's school, um, when we went to Zoom, uh, our school made a rule that you could only use the school distributed computers because they didn't want kids to be too distracted by, uh, you know, other things on the internet during the school day. But mm -hmm. at the same time that we were sort of having a, a decision to which laptop do we use? You know, the kids, a lot of the kids that are served by A26 Valencia were in a situation where they didn't have Wi-Fi, they didn't have good broadband, and a lot of people were having to share a computer among a whole family or even with a neighbor. And so you had this educational divide that's been there uh, already only widened during the pandemic. And I just thought it was a good metaphor for so many things we saw and are seeing happen during the pandemic where um, 
divides actually are widening instead of getting better. We're becoming more aware of them as the mirror is being held up to America. But the problems that face many people, especially people that are in poverty, uh, only got worse during the pandemic. So uh, that was one lesson we learned. And 826 Valencia, to their credit, really shifted focus. And for that year in particular, uh, the main year of the pandemic, I guess it's still going on, uh, really focused on making sure that kids could get online and get help with their homework and not fall further behind. Absolutely, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dave. Uh, let's now dive into your excellent book, Please Scream Inside Your Heart. I'm going to do something that I normally hate when book interviewers do, and that's ask about the title of your book. I'm making an exception to my rule to never ask about the title because the story behind your title is so interesting. Uh, Dave, can you tell us where the title of your book, Please Scream Inside Your Heart, came from? Sure. This was, uh, it was about July of the uh, 2020 and we had sort of, the world had just gotten used to being shut down for a couple months. And there's a pretty well-known amusement park in Japan where they reopened the amusement park. It's uh, in the shadow of Mount Fuji. And uh, they reopened the park and everybody there, unlike uh, in America sometimes, was following the rules and wearing their masks. But the park executives realized that when the attendees were going on an especially scary roller coaster they were screaming the entire time so mm -hmm. they made a rule and posted around the park that said you know you're you're fine to come here but please no screaming on the rides and one of these rides was at the time it was built one of the most frightening roller coasters around so it sort of became a meme in japan where young people were sort of making fun of the idea that you could ride this roller coaster or some of the other scary rides at the park without screaming so the park executives decided to prove their point by having two of their uh execs in suit and tie with perfectly combed hair and masks ride the entire ride with a webcam facing them and they didn't move a muscle and a hair didn't go out of place. And of course, they didn't make a sound. And at the end of that video of them riding this scary roller coaster, a note came up on the screen that said, please scream inside your heart. And it sort of became one of the many memes of 2020. Um, it was in a normal year, it probably would have been popular for a few months. In 2020, it was popular for a few days, but people made t-shirts and um, it sort of went viral. And of all the things that the meme moments, I felt like that one sort of captured a lot about the year uh, and our experiences. It was so crazy and weird and it was scary and funny at the same time and ridiculous and serious at the same time. Um, and also I felt like because we were all sort of faced with this invisible threat, um, we felt like we had a scream we wanted to let out, but there really was no one to yell at. And even if we tried to yell at people who didn't share our politics, our universes, our media universes were so separate that it was like yelling into a void. So I felt like Please Scream Inside Your Heart really uh, reflected how the year felt and that hopefully my book will, uh, at least for me and hopefully others, will uh, give them a chance to sort of let the scream out yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dave. Um, can you now tell us about your father and his experience 
uh, with Adolf Hitler in World War II? Uh, sure. I mean, a, a lot of the reason that I um, wrote the book um, was because of my dad and my uh, dedication in the book. It says uh, it's the book is for in many ways from my parents. Uh, both of my parents were Holocaust survivors. Um, my dad is no longer with us. My mom is. And uh, my mom survived Kristallnacht and had to be uh, escaped from Copenhagen to go grow up at a children's home uh, run by an amazing guy in France and then eventually came to the U.S. as a teenager. My dad's story was uh, maybe a little more cinematic. He uh, was one of only two people in his whole town to survive uh, after the Nazis decided they had to combine two ghettos because they had killed so many people that they didn't need two anymore. And on the day they were set to combine the ghettos, my dad was hiding in a barn. His brother had told him to hide in a barn and uh, meet him at midnight. And while he was hiding in the barn, a couple of Ukrainian soldiers that were hired by the SS came in the barn and looking around for him. But amazingly, they didn't find him hiding behind this hay, holding his breath. And at midnight, he knocked, but his brother wasn't there. And at that moment, he sort of realized he's going to be the only person in his family to survive uh, the Holocaust. And he crawled on his hands and knees in the middle of the Polish winter out into the forest and sort of survived there for many months on his own, um, sleeping on top of bread ovens, actually these outdoor bread ovens at night to survive the nighttime cold. Eventually he got a gun and a gun meant you could join the partisans, these sort of underground army groups that would um, blow up trains and uh, attack the Nazis from behind and try to interrupt supply chain lines. They actually had a pretty big impact on World War II. So he did that for several years and then eventually came to America and became this remarkably successful guy. But you know, my dad, like I said, he survived because of a gun. He was probably a Republican for most of his life. He's probably the least hysterical uh, person I've ever met in my life, or at least emotional about, uh, especially about world or political events. He had seen it all in his life. But as soon as Trump started running in 2015, he started telling me, you know, this guy's speeches sound a lot like Hitler's. It wasn't that he was saying we're going to have a Holocaust here in America. He was just talking about the media techniques that they were using and that he thought it was more worrisome than most people gave it credit for being. And uh, he also made an interesting point that he said, you know, everybody laughed at Hitler during the early days also. So don't, don't discount the threat because everybody thinks Trump is a joke or at least people in half of America thought that or think it's funny. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's any less dangerous. And his concerns about this sort of democracy slide and the um, allegiance to Trump sort of grew, as did many peoples uh, throughout the Trump era. But it really started to come to a peak um, as COVID hit. And he saw the crazy way that Trump was not leading us during that period. And I remember one day, uh, right before the pandemic uh, got really bad and the quarantine started, uh, we were out going out to lunch and on the way to lunch for about the millionth time, he said, I don't get why young people aren't out in the street right now. Don't they see that their democracy is being challenged? You have to fight for this. And I said, well, you know, I think that people are worried about it, but, you know, citizens of modern America don't think what happened to you as a kid could ever happen here, you know? 
And my dad just paused. And like I say, he's the least hysterical and most grounded person I'd ever known. He paused and said, you think when I was a kid, we, we thought it could happen there? And at that point, I sort of realized, wow, I, this is a message that I need to um, channel and get out to people. Um, you know, my brand is generally information fused with humor. That's how I do my newsletter every day, especially when things get really bad. I try to add a little bit of sugar to make the medicine go down. So that's what I basically tried to do with the book, inspired by that moment and a lot of other conversations I had with my dad, was to take a year that was undigestible in real time and try to add some context to the chaos. And while I don't shy away from the humor of the year and I try to make a lot of jokes and add to the humor of the experience and make it a fun ride. Um, you know, that's also a reason I named it after the roller coaster moment was I want the book to feel like a roller coaster ride, which is both fun and exciting, but also at moments terrifying. And I did want to get those important messages across to people um, in my own unique voice. So that was really had a lot to do with the whole process and all of my writing really is um ultimately driven by um, my dad and mom's views on the world. That was my whole childhood was absorbing media and discussing news with them. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dave. Um, I want to ask you about Wheel of Fortune, which you must love, um, because before the passage I'm about to ask you about, you reference Vanna White. Uh, do you love Wheel of Fortune? Uh, I mean, it it holds an important part in my youth uh, right. and my coming of age. I don't watch it that much anymore, but I I definitely have a nostalgic love for it. Yeah. Uh, how about Wordle as a Wheel of Fortune derivation? Yeah, Wordle, I, I've had fun with. I that, You're actually just reminding me, I'm actually not that good at word stuff for a writer, but uh, I'm pretty good at Wordle. And now you're just reminding me that must be it, my childhood training. Yeah, right. Um, very good. Well, um, I'm a Jeopardy guy myself, but uh, you write when talking about growing up with your family, quote, dinner was news, issues, debates, interrupted by a nightly half hour interlude for Wheel of Fortune. I learned everything I know about my dad's commentary on unnecessary vowel purchases. Looking back, watching people purchase vowels after they already knew the puzzle should have been a key indicator that our economy would soon be on the ropes, end quote. Dave, can you unpack this statement for us? Uh, yeah, well, as anybody who's played Wheel of Fortune knows, you have to pay for the vowels, so you don't want to pay for them if you've already solved the puzzle. Mm. And as a kid, I just remember my dad always getting, he said about 12 words during my childhood, actually, but many of them were uh, aimed at people who bought unnecessary vowels. So uh, it definitely gave me the idea that maybe uh, people weren't necessarily always making the best decisions for themselves, which we sadly saw in 2020 and through today. Um, but yeah, the, the, the main part of that uh, excerpt is really the, the fact that the news was uh, everything for me and my parents. I had three older sisters, but by the time I was in high school, they were all off in college. So this was really an area where we connected and uh, I sort of became a news junkie way pre-internet. The internet just sort of fueled my addiction as opposed to causing it. Um, but it made sense because 
my parents knew how important global events could be to one's personal life because of their childhoods. So we really focused on that a lot. Maybe we also used it like a lot of people I think do today uh, to avoid more personal topics or more emotional topics by focusing our uh, discussions outward, which I think people do too much of when it comes to the news. It was impossible to avoid uh, when that news sort of was in the air we breathed during a pandemic era. But in general, uh, I think people probably overdo it just like I do. I'm more of a I'm sort of like one of those guys from the scared straight shows they used to show where they take a kid kids to prison to meet with prisoners to warn them about what might happen if they stay on that track. I'm sort of that guy on the internet and media. I do as I say, not as I do. I'm already uh, too far gone to save, but I try to share a few lessons about my experience with media um, in the book to give people maybe a slightly more balanced um, relationship with it. Yeah, thank you so much. I think most of us are too far going to say, but hopefully some of our younger listeners will uh, take your advice to heart. Well, um, thank you, Dave. Listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Dave Pell. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Dave Pell, author of Please Scream Inside Your Heart, Breaking News and Nervous Breakdowns in the Year That Wouldn't End, which is published by our friends at Hachette. All right, Dave, back to Donald Trump, unfortunately. Uh, You write, Trump didn't turn our politics into a show. He simply became its most compelling host. He promised we'd get tired of all the winning, and he delivered. What do you mean by this, Dave? Um, I mean, in that case, I'm talking about him winning the uh, attention span of Americans, Mm -hmm. us getting tired of that. And I think the news in terms of becoming a show, I'm mostly talking about um, cable news and it's sort of, I would call decline in the years leading up to Trump um, Mm -hmm. and maybe leading to Trump. Um, It sort of started, I think, you know, when I was a kid growing up, CNN was pretty hard news and uh, you had a host, the main evening host was a guy named Bernard Shaw and he would do what you had become accustomed to during nightly news maybe with a little more depth because they had more time which is throw the story to a reporter out in the field who would report on a different story and you'd have about 10 to 12 stories in an hour and you'd sort of get an update on what was going on in the world that day Um, that sort of changed beginning with the first Gulf War 
where CNN ironically sort of became taken more seriously by some in the journalism field because they had people on the ground in Iraq reporting from hotels as the bombs were going off and really were there on the front lines of the story. The downside to that moment was that CNN realized at that point that covering one story all the time was really a great way to drive ratings. Mm -hmm. Um, So people could tune in at any moment and they'd be sort of caught up with this story. Um, And in that case, it wasn't necessarily cheaper to cover because it was a war, but that sort of model became applied to many more forms of coverage over the years. And probably the first really extreme example of that was the OJ trial, where you know, the cable news basically covered OJ 24-7. And we knew all the characters. We knew all of the um, people who were testifying. And people were obsessed with it. But you could literally flip on CNN at any time, day or night. And you sort of were, took you two seconds to catch up. It was like a soap opera. Um, I, I like to say that the Trump era was like this on steroids. It was sort of if the uh, white Ford Bronco chase had lasted for four straight years, um, people were completely obsessed. It's all anybody talked about. It was all Trump. Of course, the story was huge um, and the slide away from democracy was worth covering. And, you know, the pandemic coverage, of course, had to cover what the president was saying and doing. But it became so extreme that that's basically all people talked about. You know, before the pandemic, if you went out to dinner, um, it was inevitable that the com- the topic of Trump would come up sometime during that dinner. And even if you said, going in, I'm definitely not going to discuss this, uh, it always came up, you know. And um, I think that obsession was not only unhealthy for us as individuals, but it probably... Uh, helped enable Trump's. And to this day, um, you know, the goal of the authoritarian or a leader who wants to lead with minority rule is to really obsess you. You know, there's a reason why dictators like to put their pictures on um, walls across cities in their countries, right? Because they want to be the story. You might be criticizing that leader. You might be complimenting that leader. But as long as the story is that leader, it's a benefit to him. And I think Trump benefited from that by being the story every minute of every hour of every day during his four years. Um, It's not to say we shouldn't cover it or cover the crimes or cover the impeachment or cover uh, his attempts to overthrow the election and the big lie that continues to this day. We need to cover those things and take them seriously, but there's a difference between that and covering each word and each tweet as if it's uh, this huge news story and as if nothing else is happening in society. Right, thank you so much, Dave. Um, Your book, as we've said, is an accounting of the news cycle of 2020. It is a month by month, sometimes day by day, accounting of the news cycle of 2020. For example, uh, your book starts with a papal hand slap Uh, a mysterious new virus that surfaces in China and fires in Australia. Um, Using just these three events that kicked off 2020, could we have predicted how the rest of the year was going to go? Uh, No, I don't think there's anything we could have done to predict how 2020 was going to go. You know, 
we were all um, basically slapped in the face by something we had never really, I mean, we'd always been warned a pandemic can come, but I don't think anybody really saw it coming in the way it did and affecting our lives like it did um, and really confusing us. It was interesting that it, it really did present this moment and an opportunity where we could have come together as a country or been brought together as a country. You know, we finally had this um, sort of universal threat or universal invisible enemy that we could have, you know, locked arms or at least locked virtual arms six feet apart and done what we had to do to help each other uh, get over it. And in a way, at the micro level, uh, people did do that, of course. You know, we all can think of a hundred examples of local people helping each other or dropping off food at somebody who was elderly's home or you know even the bigger level like what jose andres and other people did to feed uh health workers and you know great things that people did i know a lot of people personally who started nonprofits specifically to serve frontline workers or healthcare workers uh during the pandemic but at the national level there was really a it was even more than a vacuum. It was really using this moment that could have brought us together to further divide us. And I always felt like, uh, aside from the death and illness, of course, that that was the most depressing part about 2020. I mean, if Trump had decided he wanted to use that moment to bring us together, there's no doubt, I don't think, that he would be president for a second term. Um, so there would have been a downside, at least to me, if uh, he had done that. But it just seemed to be this opportunity. We were all confused. Um, we didn't really know what to tell our kids when they asked us questions about what was going to happen. Nobody really knew what was going to happen. And those are just these moments where all the uh, frivolous stuff can just be pushed to the side and people can really say, um, let's come together and and remember our common humanity. And unfortunately, that event only further divided us so it's one of the major bummers of a bummer year yeah and geez i still don't know what to tell uh my kid and here we are two years into it um we'll return to trump's inability to bring folks together later but first perhaps the next big news of 2020 which seems uh, sort of silly in retrospect is the news that prince harry and Megan planned to be financially independent of the royal family. And my gosh, Dave, um, why do people care about this? Why was this a story? How do you feel about news centered around the royal family in general? Yeah, I, I'm really not a uh, a huge consumer of that news. Mm -hmm. um, but I really included that in the book for a few reasons. But the main one was that that was the kind of stuff that still consumed our interest uh, right before the pandemic. So there were these certain issues, the book sort of narrows in terms of our focus as the first months unfold where we had at least, even though Trump dominated the news cycle, we still had some breadth of news and information that we absorbed and that uh, we commented on on social media or among our friends or at dinner parties or whatever. And, uh, you know, Harry leaving the uh, royal family and moving to Santa Barbara was one of those stories. But those things seemed so ridiculous as we narrowed in and really focused on three major stories, all of which were very connected. One, the pandemic, which was almost all of it. And then there was also, of course, the Black Lives Matter 
movement um, and the protests taking to the streets. And um, I'm blanking on the third. That's not good. But uh, we can the third, sorry, the third was the crazy election. Uh, yeah. That's why I'm saying they're all they're all connected. Mm -hmm. So we have, uh, you know, the election and Black Lives Matter and the pandemic were all sort of tied up eventually into one story, which was Americans taking sides and picking which direction they wanted the country to go. And unfortunately, that answer was more narrow than I would have predicted and hoped, but at least it was in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Dave. I now want to talk about um, the first impeachment trial of Donald Trump, um, which was led by Adam Schiff. As an aside, we recently hosted Adam Schiff here at Quill Ridge Books, and um, I've been around a lot of politicians in my life, and uh, hanging out with him for a couple hours of his book signing, I never felt like I was hanging out with a politician, which I think is to his credit. Um, but Mitch McConnell, um, before this trial even started, said there was zero chance of a conviction. Uh, why was this okay? Not only was Trump obviously guilty, but you're supposed to wait until after a trial uh, to determine guilt or innocence. How is Mitch McConnell, who doesn't even represent that many people, how is he able to get away with such nonsense and why? Is his uh, influence so outsized? Yeah, well, it's just really a political strategy that we've seen him uh, deploy, which is obstructionism and um, win at any cost philosophy that's sort of come to dominate uh, at least one party in Congress these days. And like we said earlier, like many other things, laid the groundwork for Trump. So we saw it in the Merrick Garland uh, Supreme Court nomination process where he wouldn't uh, put that before the Senate, even though that was crazy and unprecedented, and later reverse that stance when Trump had his picks. So it really is uh, the absence of the collegiality and patriotism really that had defined the Senate and Congress during other areas, eras, not all eras, but other ones, um, you know, and I don't think that McConnell is a huge fan of Trump, but I do think that that type of politics laid the groundwork for Trump, which was win no matter what. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that first impeachment trial where you mentioned Adam Schiff, I mean, he did a remarkable job, but it really showed um, how different our media universes are and how much contempt there was among the two sides for each other that people like you and me could see Schiff and think like, man, he's making such a clear case. He's doing such an incredible job. You know, what a heroic uh, presentation. And most lawyers on both sides of the aisle were praising him and how well he laid out the argument. And yet, um, only Mitt Romney uh, voted yes on impeachment. And, you know, that really was like a precursor to what we would see as the situation became more serious, both with Trump's second impeachment, um, which was around a topic that was so much more 
immediate and serious, the January 6th insurrection, and uh, just around acquiescing to his leadership, um, no matter how crazy it got, um, from minor rules being broken, like having uh, his GOP convention at the White House, uh, which sort of makes a joke of many of our rules, to the more major things, which was knowingly lying about the seriousness of the COVID threat, um, calling for fewer tests when cases were going up, um, not being willing to wear a mask in public because it didn't make him look good until he realized he looked like the Lone Ranger, I guess he thought at one point. Um, so yeah, that that moment really when the first impeachment was handled and we realized that it doesn't matter what the truth is, all that matters is which side you're on. It seemed about as serious as it could get at that point, but we were about to learn that it was about to get a lot more serious. And it's a threat and situation that continues to this day. I mean, you still, in order to get Trump's backing and be a modern GOP candidate for office in many states in the country, you still have to question Biden's victory. You still have to adhere to the big lie. Uh, you still have to sort of pretend that these insane statements Trump makes about winning the election are true. And that really is, uh, it's, we, I think we went from a slippery slope just a complete free fall uh, in one party when it comes to that. That's just really scary. And that's exactly how democracies end. So sadly, the moment in history right now is equally as concerning as it was um, when Trump was running for reelection. Yeah, and um, good for, for Mitt Romney for voting like he should have. But man, do you, uh, do you ever miss the most controversial thing about the news cycle surrounding uh, American politics being Mitt Romney and his binders full of women. Yeah, no, you think about so many moments like that. I, I also think about um, Howard Dean's scream that sort of yeah. ended his campaign. Mm -hmm. and I'm a buddy with Joe Trippi who was running that campaign. And you think about that yelling a few names of places that he was headed to was considered too crazy to win the candidacy and look at the level of crazy that we got to. And, ensuing years you know yeah it's that frivolity you know led to some of the problems there's donald trump did not happen in a vacuum there were a lot of reasons and and some of those reasons candidly you know at the you know to avoid being too partisan some of those reasons also are the way that the democrats ignored uh parts of america you know it wasn't helpful when obama went to flint and drank the waters that it's great uh it wasn't helpful that the Democrats and most of really the political class in general ignored the opiate crisis um, because it wasn't at the time really hitting either coast and it wasn't something that they dealt with day to day. But if you lived along the I-95 corridor between Florida and the Appalachian Mountains, it was like the story and it was being totally ignored. So I think there were, you know, I, I never really argue with the anger that um, and frustration and alienation that people on one side of the aisle might feel. Mm -hmm. I just wish that the expression of that anger had been 
to vote for somebody who actually had their um, well-being in mind as opposed to what they got. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, coincidentally, I went down the road the other day of um, what would have happened if Howard Dean had never screened, uh, you know, from George W. Bush not being elected to September 11th and all the dominoes that would have fallen. Um, what a different world it would have been if we would have just forgiven him for screening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess you could pick that, pick a bunch of moments in American history to do that. But Absolutely. at this point, I guess we got to figure out how do we uh, write the ship so it yeah. doesn't get any worse. For sure. Um, speaking of which, and I told you we would come back around to this, um, there is a ton of stuff left to talk about in your book here in, in 2020, uh, but our time is limited. Um, but I do want to ask you, do you think Donald Trump is responsible for the state of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States two years later? Do you think he cares? And do you think he will be reelected in 2024? All right, so do I think he's responsible? I, I think the virus is responsible. Mm -hmm. Do I think he, he's responsible for dividing us at a time that he could have united us? Definitely. Do I think that he uh, fed red meat to uh, his followers that led them to doubt institutions and doubt science so that they would be less likely to get vaccinated when we got this unbelievable gift from science. Um, definitely. Uh, even though he tried to reel that back in by telling people to get vaccinated, he would get booed for doing that. And he still does get booed when he brings that up because it's a lot harder to reel people back in than it is to rile them up. Um, do I think that he was responsible for stirring up violent mobs uh, that threatened uh, the Michigan governor, governor and did protests around the country um, against vaccines and against mask wearing and against basically common sense? Definitely. But I don't I don't criticize him for the or blame him for the virus writ large at all. Um, but the numbers would have been different. So how many how many numbers does it is enough you know was it a hundred thousand more deaths because of his leadership was it fifty thousand what if it was only 200 what if it was 10 you know that matters uh it matters a lot so uh i blame him for the severity of the crisis i don't blame him for the crisis um it was definitely bad timing I guess viruses find the human body when they're weakest and uh, COVID found the political body when it was at its most vulnerable. Uh, and I don't know if he's going to win again. My gut would be no. Um, I think he's too damaged. And I think too few people in the Republican Party really want him to be back on the scene. They'd rather have the benefit of him riling people up as opposed to his leadership. But I never would have predicted it the first time around. I never would have predicted that the re-election bid would have been so close. So I think it's uh, certainly could happen and it's certainly worth worrying about. And in the meantime, the damage that he's doing to democracies, institutions like voting are huge. And the fact that so few people are standing up to him on that from his party uh, is 
just an endless pit of depression. Uh, it's just so upsetting. So I don't know is the answer to will he, could he win again? Well, let's hope not. Um, well, thank you, Dave. And thank you for writing this wonderful book. I can't wait for our listeners and our customers here at Quill Ridge Books uh, to learn more about it. Listeners, I've been speaking with Dave Pell, author of Please Scream Inside Your Heart, Breaking News and Nervous Breakdowns in the Year That Wouldn't End, which is published by our friends at Hachette. Dave, thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Dave Pell for joining me. Copies of Please Scream Inside Your Heart can be purchased from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'. Quail Ridge Books is Raleigh's trusted community bookstore, hosting author events, book clubs, writing workshops, and more since 1984. Visit them in North Hills, Lassiter District in Raleigh, North Carolina, or online at www.quailridgebooks.com.